Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, my guest today is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who uh, I was thinking about this, Kareem, and I know this word, you have a lot of feelings about it, but if I had to list the 10 heroes I've had of my lifetime, you're one of them. And um, well, <laughs> it, it, that's the truth. Well, uh, you. I, you know, the word surreal is overused, but uh, it's really meaningful and momentous to me to be able to talk to you. I shook your hand when I was like, maybe I was 12 years old when you wrote your first memoir or something like that. And I, I, I remember I shook your hands on an airplane once and it was, you were nice to me despite your reputation for not being nice <laughs> uh, back then. That, you were completely nice to me. undeserved, really. I can tell because I had the personal other experience of you being very nice. Right, so, thank you. So <laughs> uh, uh, I, I saw it firsthand. <laughs> you shook my head and you were nice uh, uh, to me. But, but, but I have to say, look, uh, people listening know, I'm sure that you were uh, unquestionably one of the three greatest basketball players who ever lived. But the life you lived while you were doing that and since is um, equally if, if important, as important, if not more important. And uh, I'm just thrilled that you're taking the time to talk to me. So thanks, dude. Oh, no problem. Not at all. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's start. Uh, you know, you're such a good writer. And um, I've read many of your books. And uh, most recently, the John Wooden book. I just read the John Wooden book over the weekend, which I just loved because I have a, such a fascination with Wooden. And so understanding him fully, as you allow us to do, and also the way you use his story to tell your own, uh, which I, I love that as a, uh, a technique because it's a secret memoir. Uh, and yeah. so it was fabulous for that reason. Well, but can we start here with your Catholicity of interests? Sure. Be because it's amazing to me the way you're able to dive into so many different things. So how would you order your own focus and enthusiasms now? Like writing, politics, jazz, communication, the world. Like where are you finding yourself pulled to and, and, and why these days? Well, the, the whole, this whole uh, showdown with uh, the Russians is, uh, you know, really, it's scary. I mean, we, we could be, uh, you know, approaching the, the beginning of World War III. And, I, you know, I, I don't think people take it seriously enough. And I don't think people, uh, you know, really uh, appreciate the threat to our way of life. Um, so uh, you know that that to me is, is is something that really we should have that on our minds and uh, be trying to resolve that as soon and as peacefully as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine there have been many existential crises in your lifetime. I mean, you were alive whether you were fully sentient or not. I mean, you were alive for the Cuban Missile Crisis. You were alive for the Berlin Wall coming down and all the tensions that led led to that moment. Do you think that now, because you're a grandfather, because you're uh, at a certain place in your life, that you look on those things differently than you, than, than you did earlier? Absolutely, yeah. Because, uh, you know, I, I see myself having uh, a lot to do to influence the world that my granddaughters are, are going to uh, inherit. So, you know, that's a serious responsibility and uh, something that uh, we, we need to take seriously because we are, we, every day we form the world that we are going to uh, leave our, our children and grandchildren and, you know, that's a serious responsibility. Well, responsibility's a word that it seems to me from having watched you so closely that at various times in, in your life, you have taken on a responsibility or a series of responsibilities that maybe you didn't have to or maybe others wouldn't have. And do you think that that's just the way you were wired? Do you think it's situational? Do you think it had to do with a reaction to the way you were parented. Many athletes intentionally shut off from 
that kind of taking on the mantle of those kinds of responsibilities. And you never did, even when you were shy, even when it was really to your detriment. Uh, what do you think made you open to or called to that? I think uh, just what, what called me to it was like worrying about how, how I was going to uh, live a complete life here in America where we had incidents like the Emmett Till incident, you know, which uh, I was eight years old when that happened. And that really made me ask questions and, and, and wonder about, you know, what it was about the country that I lived in that, that made me fear and, uh, you know, worry about uh, being able to live my my life, you know, because uh, of uh, racist attitudes that have no no basis in reality. But, uh, you know, we, we have to cope with this and deal with this uh, on a daily basis. Uh, it, it really bothered me and uh, it, it made me um, approach things in, in a certain way. Right. But it's not it's not only issues of race on which you focus. That's I mean, yes, you focused on issues of race, but it seems to me you had the ability to focus on issues that were beyond only those that personally touched you. You were an advocate for women, too. You've been an advocate along the way for many different individuals or groups of individuals. And uh, how did you balance the risks of that with the whatever you felt was the need to do it? Well, see, I, I saw the need to do it to be the fact to, to give everybody... Uh, an opportunity uh, to give everybody access to uh, this incredible country that we live in. Uh, you have to uh, be willing to um, share and uh, help others, and uh, you know, hopefully, get that help from others that will help you succeed. You know that that's that's what America is supposed to be about, and um, you know. Every now and then we, we reach that, that height, but um, it's not always. Well, you, you write in the, in the wooden book uh, about a few times that, that people wanted to, to uh, it kind of insist to you, because you, it's interesting to me that you just talked about this great country, which, which uh, you know, to me, it's been a, in, in most ways or in many ways a great country, and, and uh, it's... I wouldn't want to be anything other than American. But uh, in the book, you talk about a tension there when, when uh, in many of the things you've written, between this idea that, that you should have a gratitude for all that America's given you uh, and the, the tension of that with, with all the ways in which America hasn't served you or people uh, like you. And, and do you still find yourself grappling with that tension on a daily basis? Um, not on a daily basis, but regularly, you know, you see where uh, it's not working out. And, you know, you have to say something. You have to do something. And I, I think that's, uh, that's what people don't understand. You know, um, I, I, let me give you an example. This uh, young lady is a student at Harvard and she's in her dorm. Uh, she is an African-American and another student who is not African-American questions, why is she here? She, she doesn't belong here. And they call the, uh, you know, the, the security to check this person out because that person doesn't belong. And that whole idea of uh, belonging and being a part of uh, is what is denied uh, to uh, black Americans and other Americans of color uh, on a regular basis. And we, we, we got to get past that. And, and it seems you've spent a lot of your writing life finding ways not just to write about the shortcomings, but celebrating people who've managed to grapple with or overcome or, or deal with it. And I, 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 I wonder, when, when did you realize that writing could be this kind of outlet for you? 
And and what does being a writer give you? Because, you know, for those who are listening who haven't read your work, I mean, you're an incredibly evocative writer. Uh, you reference Hemingway, and I, what I see in your work, you, know, you quote Hemingway in the wooden book, but what I see in your work that's Hemingway-like is you never use, it's clear you have an extensive vocabulary and you could use any word you want, but you never use the $50 word if the $5 word gets the point across. And there's a directness in, that makes reading you an absolute pleasure. And uh, so when did you begin to take the pursuit of that as seriously as you did the Skyhook? Jeez, uh, <laughs> probably while I was in, in college. Uh, I, you know, I was encouraged to write while I was in grade school. But, you know, I, I didn't understand really the power of the written word until I, I got into college. I was an English major and a history major at various times. And when you learn the power of the written word and uh, what it can open up for you in terms of uh, making a point, I, I, I think that's a, it's a great moment. And, uh, you know, I've, I've enjoyed it. Was it a way, I mean, you often describe yourself as shy and, uh, and you know, you're, the image of you for all those years. I'm 55 years old, so, you know, I really did grow up. I mean, I just, so many of my childhood memories involve, involve you, right? Because of who you were, both as a, I was a basketball fanatic. So both as a, a player and as a, a figure in the, cu the culture. And there was this idea around you that, that the air around you wasn't to be disturbed in a way that you were on a certain kind of pursuit, right? And well, you're laughing, but maybe it didn't feel like that on the inside of it. No, it didn't. Because um, it was like people didn't want to deal with the subject matter that I that I found so very important. Right. And um, you know, it's it's been like this for a while. You know. It, you, you feel that you have a legitimate point to raise and people understand that they don't want to talk about that point. And, you know, we go back and forth like that. I mean, when you say, do you still feel that way, even with all the attention now? When you, I mean, the thing is, you've worked for so long as a writer and it's so clear that you're the real, you know, you are a writer, not a basketball player who writes, you're a writer. Uh, what I was going to ask is, did writing, was that form of communication a way that you could get past all the externalities in a way to like lay out, uh, lay out your argument, your, your point of view, your sense of humor? I mean, all these things we get to do as writers, right? Which is here where we get to present a lot of who we are inside in, in the way, way we do that. And, and was that a way that you could kind of reach across and then connect uh, that was harder to do when you were this other other figure to, to, to the way you'd be received. Yeah, I, I think that uh, writing allowed me not to have to deal with uh, my height or my race or my economic uh, status. Yes. I, you know, it just, you, you put your thoughts and uh, what you feel and uh, what you know to be true, you put them on the paper, and uh, that document should be uh, appraised and uh, judged. You know, and it has it has very little to do with the, what the individual is all about, and uh, hopefully we can get to what the facts and the truth are all about. Yeah, I just read that article that. Uh you wrote uh, about healthcare in America and um, the way that African Americans are just objectively treated so much more poorly and than uh, other groups of people. And what I was struck by was the constant effort to reach out uh, in the writing, you know, um, it's you're not writing in a closed off way and to people who are already signed on to your mission. You're you present as a writer in a very open and inviting way. And uh, and that makes the pieces much more powerful. And 
I guess as a writer, you know, I understand that that's a choice, that tone is a very conscious choice a writer makes. So I, I just wonder, how much do you think about, are, are you thinking about the end result when you start, meaning what do I want to accomplish by this piece? I don't usually, like I usually start with a feeling I'm trying to get out and then I find the central question as I'm going or I find where I want it to land as I'm going. So, uh, you know, and, and tone is an early thing, right? You write the first, for me, I write the first couple of paragraphs and I find what the voice of the piece is. And so how do you think about tone and about uh, sort of like how, how you want the piece to land? Where does that, is that in the rewriting for you? Is that before you start? How does that work? Well, it, it happens before I start. And, you know, what I want to communicate, what the issue is, how can we resolve it? And, you know, a lot of these things usually just end up being a, a discussion of the morality of it. What, what is right and what is wrong, you know, and you go from there. That, that's, uh, that's the easiest way to deal with it. And, uh, you know, when people can accept the right and wrong of something and see what fairness is about, you know, that, that's a big issue. And, uh, you know, when we can speak to those issues with, without bias, uh, th that's when we make the progress because uh, we understand that uh, these uh, situations uh, uh, apply to everyone. You know, we're, we're all in this together. That's all true. And I guess what I'm asking also is I can kind of feel that there is an impatience or an anger at the systematic way in which groups of people continue to be marginalized. <laughs> Yet, when you write the pieces, and you're laughing because obviously I'm stating it, I'm understating it, but when you write the pieces, it seems to me you make the choice not to let your anger lead. That you seem to make the choice to even allow humor in the pieces, like they're funny and you... Uh, it seems that as a writer, you've made a choice to sublimate the anger for uh, inviting people into the discussion. And and did you always do that, or is that something you've learned to do as a as a writer, but as your craft has gotten deeper? I think it's something that I've learned to do because, uh, you know, in in the context here in America, it's about one group of people wanting to maintain their privileges without seeming to yeah. be elite or uh, having a, a, a step up in every circumstance, having an advantage, and, uh, you know, people want to deny that, and they can't really deny it. Uh, when you point it out to them, that's uh, when we hopefully get to make some progress, or that's when people dig their heels in and say, uh, I'm, I'm not giving up that privilege. Uh, I'm going to make, make you go around the block three more times uh, before uh, we can share uh, X, Y, or Z. And, uh, you know, that's the frustration that uh, most people who do not see themselves as being part of the, uh, uh, the elite that, that, that's what they're upset about. The, you mean the, the people who are de facto oppressors, but want to identify differently? They, they, what it is, it, well, geez, you know, we didn't start slavery. You know, why are you coming to us? And, you know, these are people that are benefiting from the uh, after, after effects of slavery. And um, it, it's, they choose not to see it and acknowledge it or open the door wider for, for more people. And um, this, this is something that has to be changed. Would you describe yourself as hopeful or resigned about the way we live and treat each other? Meaning you write these pieces, like hearing you talk, it, it, it feels, uh, 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 um, you know, taking three more laps around the block, uh, it, it's, there's a deep awareness as you talk of, for all the progress, the ways in which uh, there isn't nearly enough. 
And yet you still take the time to write the pieces to try and galvanize. And I wonder if there isn't a tension in, in this hope resignation dynamic. And so how do you tease it out for yourself? Well, um, every now and then I get to, to see something that gives me hope. Uh, for example, uh, a couple of uh, years ago when um, George Floyd was murdered and the response from Americans of all, all stripes, uh, that, that really gave me hope. People, they don't want that to be America. You know that black Americans don't want that to be America. But uh, people can, could see quite plainly that they wouldn't want to live under those types of circumstances. And, uh, you know, I, I thought we had a, a moment there that uh, we could teach and learn from and make some progress with. And, you know, I, I still have that hope. When you wrote that, you wrote that piece, uh, and the thing that just caught me, I'd read the stat before, but seeing the way you wrote it, which was that I think in neonatal units, black children with black doctors have like a far greater percentage chance of surviving than if there was a white doctor taking care of them. That was in your article and I'd read something uh, like that before. And when, so when you see something like that, how do, how do we, where do you find hope for it to change? Be, be, because what you're really talking about there is one group's inability to see the humanity of another group. That's why, right? That's what that's, that's yeah. That's what it comes to down to. About. Yeah. On some level, the lack of ability to in, internally feel intellectually, they know they're doctors. So it's some fundamental structural from all the centuries inability to connect human to human. And and so where do you find a hope in in changing that? Um, we, we just have to, uh, keep trying. I mean, what else can we do if, if we don't, uh, keep trying? Uh, we can't give in to, uh, just despair and feeling that it's never going to change. We, we do see change, but it, it comes in increments. And, uh, oftentimes there are many steps backwards for all the steps forward that we take. Yes. Uh, no, no doubt, no doubt about that. Do you get to hear stories of the way in which something you've done or said or written has shifted? So, like, did you get any letters after you wrote that piece from any any doctors, or did your son hear from? Because your son's a doctor, a surgeon, uh, and he was on the cover of that magazine you reference a minute. Uh, did. Uh, do you ever hear of somebody saying, wow, it's making me take a look at how I'm going to do my job? Or you just think, well, I put it out there and look, it's, it's, someone's going to. It's going to happen. I, I get po positive feedback. Uh, you know, people reach out, uh, email, mail, you name it. They see me in the street. They say, thank you for the article. It was insightful. And, you know, that, <laughs> that enables me to keep trying. Are you more comfortable with those interactions now than you were when you were younger? Yeah, a lot more. And, uh, you know, I, I understand it. Be before, I was so focused on my career as an athlete. I, I didn't, I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want any disturbances. I didn't want any uh, uh, interactions that uh, could divert me. And um, now that uh, I'm at this point in my life, I can, you know, see how I affected people's lives in ways that I had no idea when it was happening. Um, like what you said about uh, what, was I nice to you or not? You know, it, it, I understand how important that is now and I, I do a better job of it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's important on, 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 on many levels, but look, because of the culture when the culture in the 70s was these questions were so heightened and they were being asked in the mainstream for the first time in the 60s and 70s. Where I was born in 66. And there were only a few. And as you know, many athletes, athletes who are at the center of a young boy's childhood, many young boys at that time, there were very few athletes 
who a kid who also loved to read could relate to, right? I was someone who was in the arts and sports. I play, played every sport and I loved reading. So there were only a few people who were going to uh, touch me, right, in, the, in that way. And yeah, the fact that you were, I, I mean, the fact that I had literally just read a book of yours and then I saw you like a week later was so mind-blowing to me. And yeah, the, <laughs> the fact, fact that you just shook my hand was a bit, big deal, right? Uh, but you could see how, yeah, the other thing, when someone is mean or or just it's not mean is the wrong word but when someone isn't interested in engaging it can be crushing to a kid yeah you know i remember um waiting outside yankee stadium to get to get uh, autographs from the football giants and uh you know some guys just came out and they were in a rush and had no time you know and that was just the breaks. Yeah, that was the breaks. So, so here's an interesting thing when, when I read your books. And you talk about it a lot in the wooden book, too. It seems like you have one life skill that I wish I had and that, that I think more of us could have. And I'm really curious. More of us would do better if we had this, which is it seems that you trained yourself. There are like three different instances in that book where someone says or does something in front of you. And you describe that you go through a process where the reactive mind doesn't take over like the reactive and instinctive mind doesn't take over and you're able to quickly categorize it and uh not take the bait and uh can you just talk about how that happens for you or how you developed that because it is what a useful thing to be able to go through life most of us if a car cuts us off you know our initial reaction is to be like go fuck yourself which is just terrible. Uh, and it seems to me people have said horrible things around you or to you. And you've been able to find a way to process it that doesn't result in this knee-jerk reaction. So how? Like, like how, how does that happen for you? Well, I guess uh, a black American learns to expect that there's hostility out there directed at them that uh, people aren't obviously uh, letting on to. And you, you just have to be careful uh, in everything that you do because uh, you might run into that, that bias and, uh, you know, have to react in a way that, uh, you know, most, most people wouldn't tolerate. But, uh, you know, you have to react in a, in a way that uh, enables you to achieve what you need to achieve because uh, you will encounter bigotry and, and bias. That's incredibly advanced. A lot, I mean, many people don't, even people who were raised to expect to get that stuff aren't able to. Do you think like your meditative practice helps? In, in terms of that, do you think the fact that you think about these things ahead of time helps? Meaning, how can other people, do you think, tap into, how did you teach your kids about it? I think you can't always expect people to be friendly and uh, open and, uh, you know, willing to live and let live. You don't always encounter that. And when you encounter the other side of that, you, you know, you, you better, better be ready to deal with it because it's there and it's, uh, it's going to find you. It's um, one of the uh, more unfortunate aspects of life in America. When, when did you realize, like, you, you talk about how your, your kids in school called you, like, egghead or something like that because they you were, like, not an athletic kid at first and smart. When when did you realize, like, you realized you were different and tall. Obviously, there was no avoiding it. But I often ask guests on this show who are successful in the arts and were not recognized uh, when they were young. Was there a moment or a a period of time 
when you realized that you were had a an intellectual capacity that was different than most people's and and because you you know you are clearly in the uh, upper upper echelon intellectually and and always have been and i i, I just wonder did teachers recognize it did you did, you know you've described the way your parents were and they were always pushing it seems but was there a moment that you were realized that you understood things and were able to synthesize information in a way that was different from many of your peers? Well, I think uh, I was in the fourth grade and um, I'd gone to really good schools up to that point. And uh, my parents sent me to a boarding school with a lot of, uh, it was a boarding school for black kids. And um, I, I, I was reading several uh, grade levels ab above fourth grade, and uh, the nuns thought that was amazing, and you know, put me out there as an example of what it meant to be intelligent and capable in the classroom. And then the other the other guys that were students there, they they resented that, and you know, of course. It, it put a target on my back. And so were there periods of time you, you tried to hide? Were there periods of time you tried to hide how smart you were? No, I, I didn't try to hide it, but I, I didn't necessarily promote it. And um, l learning how to box it, uh, really solved all my problems. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-Bruce, learning to box before Bruce Lee taught you right. other stuff. Yeah, My dad used to box, you know, so he said, well, if you don't know how to defend yourself, you're going to be in uh, for some tough times. So I, I, I took care of that, uh, that aspect of uh, learning how to cope. I never heard you talk about this, but I, I'm just curious. Did you ever consider, I mean, I, you do, you've written about that you wanted to get out and be able to earn money and play basketball professionally as soon as you could. You don't want to extend it. But did you ever consider the Rhodes Scholarship? Did you ever consider applying for it? Or no. was it just never in your mind because you knew I could go make millions of dollars right away, I have to go do it? I Well, you know, I knew that uh, if I could stay healthy and get drafted by the NBA, uh, I could sign a, a contract and uh, start making great money. So, you know, I, I, I never let that uh, be a distraction. So the it was never on your mind the thought of going abroad and studying and and doing the roads because you would have gotten the roads probably and you know if you if you think about it it's it's likely you'd have gotten it but it just never occurred to you never did no yeah uh, I figured that was the case but I you know they always talk about these few athletes who played in the NBA who who, who did it or maybe just Bradley maybe he's the only one who did you guys get along well did you and Bradley get along. Yeah, I, I would speak to Bill, although uh, I never had a chance to speak to him at length. Uh, but I remember um, he he used to play basketball in in uh, Manhattan, and I have a picture of him playing with some of my friends when he first got uh, with the Knicks. This is pretty interesting. You mean with some of your friends in New York City, like playing in uh, like outdoors at Rucker or somewhere? And I don't know if you saw it just a couple of days ago, E. Rich Barnes played the defensive backfield for the Giants. I, I got to be friends with him while I was in high school, and he, he just passed away. Oh, but, sorry. Uh, yeah. He was 86, though. He, he, had, he lived a, an incredible life. But, I, you know, I, I played with E. Rich like streetball. I didn't know who he was. And then he introduced himself. You know, he was he was uh, playing for the Giants. My favorite one of those stories, which I don't know if it's true, but the first time Earl Monroe came down and threw that crazy pass, supposedly you were on the court when I was, and and that's true, right? Is that's a, he's my you know Earl. I love Earl personally. Summer of nineteen sixty five, through he just blew my mind. You know, because I was like, what what is he doing? And then he he had all of this stuff that he could do that would blow your mind, and he had on. One black low cut and a white high high cut sneaker. That first day that he came down, uh, that he came up from Philly. Yeah, the Baker League uh, played the uh, Rucker League, and you know they had that that game. Uh, you know, like 
on a, on a weekend right before school starts. Man, that's that game has been that's been in my imagination since I was such a little boy, like reading about it and hearing about it, and yeah. uh, that you were there. I, I really think people don't understand how good Earl was, and it's you know you can feel him falling out of the top. You could feel the stat heads wanting to say that that he, you know, really wasn't an all-time great. But having seen him, you just can't deny it. I you can't think. deny it. And um, th there's an article in today's uh, Times on ball handlers, and I, I was surprised not to see Earl's name in there. You know, because he he could handle. Yeah, it. because he well, but but Earl had to dribble. I mean, we'll get off of this. But Earl had to dribble with his hand on top of the ball. I mean, that's the thing right. people don't understand. Now, it's now Earl and Clyde and... can carry the they, ball They now. didn't get to... They couldn't carry. They had to dribble with their hands on top of the ball. It's a... It's a I, even I'm the last generation that grew up playing that way. But if, if you have to dribble with your hand on top of the ball, all those moves are so much harder to execute. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's true. It's, it's, yeah. People don't think about it. They don't understand it because they didn't see those games and there's no good... You know... There's no good footage. But, you know, Earl, Earl had his own cheering section. Yeah, Dancing <laughs> Harry. He was wonderful, man. He, he, and uh, he told me he came up to New York to play that game one year, and they stole his car. They stole his Rolls Royce. He had a Rolls Royce. They stole it, and he was, like, w wondering about it. And a couple of days later, he got a call from the police in Philadelphia. They had driven it down to Philly, and when it ran out of gas, they put it next, they, they just parked it and left it. It's a side they of the road. They left it for him, so he was able to get it back. He was able to That's get his awesome. car back. You gotta ask Earl about that. I will ask him about it. I haven't spoken to him in a little while, but I, I love him, and we've, uh, sometime in, in, in person, I'll, I'll tell you, we, we, he and I have had some, we had some very good time, meaningful times when I was young. All right, now here's a, here's, a, here's a question. Writers, as you know, need to engage empathetically, but athletes need to tap into a kind of solitariness, a solipsism, as you were talking about earlier, where to do your business, you know, and that can verge in the modern era, that can verge into narcissism. Uh, you know, I, I made a documentary, Dave and I did, my partner and I, about Jimmy Connors, and, and you just felt that, that Jimmy felt he had to exist in a bubble, in, or, and, and he didn't care if he was hated, he had to be in a bubble to execute what he wanted to execute. But for you to make the transition from an, an athlete who worked best in a bubble, protecting yourself, your sanity, all of it, what was the process like to tear that stuff down to stoke your capacity for empathy to do the work you've been doing for the last 45 years. Geez, uh, you, you just have to uh, really choose something that uh, is meaningful to you personally, and you have to pursue it uh, and, you know, to the point where you can say that you're a professional. You know, you have to develop a whole lot of uh, skills and disciplines in order to uh, express yourself but but in particular empathy meaning understanding the experience of the other and being able to feel it i feel that in your in your writing you know when you tell a story about something you've witnessed there is a real kind of um an empathy and i guess the question is I mean, it's fun. i always i always felt that there was a sensitivity in you and that was part of why you had to shut off a lot of the world so was it that you were all you're nodding along? So you were always feeling it all, basically. But but for a time, you needed to keep a certain main. You, uh, and then post NBA, you allowed yourself to be more expressive about what you were really feeling or understanding. Is that true? Right. Yeah. I, I just uh, start. I had the time to un. I, I had the time to take the time to understand what the whole phenomenon was all about. And, uh, it, you know, it's enabled me to deal with all of it a lot, a lot better. I have time and, um, I, you know, I, I see the need. Did coach, did your relationship with Coach Wooden help, you think, uh, because you were so different, help you to understand the experience of people who were nothing like you, uh, surface-wise nothing like you? 
Yeah, I, I think I've always uh, had that insight uh, just because uh, what I've had to deal with always standing out and being different, you know. I'm not going to just melt into the crowd. And so you mean that gave you a sensitivity for others who were in a similar position? Right, others that stick out and... Um, you don't get any privacy. You don't. You don't get any private moments. You know. You have to. What do, you know? You talk about Ali, but I haven't heard you talk much about Arthur Ashe. And you guys were at UCLA at the same time, and he's yes. a lifelong fascination. Arthur Ashe, you know that John McPhee book is one of the greatest sports books ever uh, about him finally winning Wimbledon. And uh, what was it? Did you have a, would you say you had a friendship with him? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I, I met Arthur when I was a freshman. He was a senior. And, uh, you know, we got to be friends. Um, I helped him do his book on uh, the history of black athletes. I helped him do some research on that. Arthur was a great guy, you know, and it, it really, it really bothered me that he had to leave as, as early as he did uh, and the way he did, you know, just getting tainted blood in a, in, a, in a blood transfer. Um, that shouldn't have happened, but there you go. Was he someone that you could talk to because, uh, who could understand in a way what you were going through because you were both singular figures in American sport at the time? Oh yeah, definitely. And it's funny, you know, UCLA had a history of that, you know, Jackie Robinson, Kenny Washington, uh, Arthur, uh, Flojo, uh, Jackie Joyner Corsi. Oh, yeah. A lot of black athletes have made uh, Rafer, one of my favorite people in the world. He, he just passed. It, it was. Uh, for me, it was neat to be part of that tradition. I, I, I wanted to be part of that tradition uh, that UCLA had, had, had established. When, uh, when Ali came up to you and you were sitting at the drums, did, did, did he mention or did you mention that you had met on the street that time? Or did it never, like, did you ever tell him, was he just playing it cool when you approached him the first time? Did he know who you were, you think? I don't think he knew who I was when I saw him in the street, but he knew who I was, you know, at that party. Of course, oh, you think in the street he wasn't playing it cool, like he just actually didn't know who you were. You weren't quite famous enough yet. And I didn't, I didn't come up close enough to him to, to engage with him. I, I just observed the, uh, what was going on out there, you know, where he was doing magic tricks for, for perfect strangers. Incredible. No, yeah. that's just an incredible story. I mean, yeah, this John Wood, I just love the wooden book so much. I'm so fascinated by Coach and and... Picturing the two of you watching, it's wild to me because, like I said, I just read that book this weekend. I'd missed it somehow when it came out. But my wife and I watched Liberty Valance. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And we watched Liberty Valance six days ago. We just happened to watch it one night because of that quote that you use. Someone had said that quote to Amy. Amy had didn't know what movie it was from. And I was like, we got to watch Liberty Valance. And then we watched the movie just to see it end and that, you know, just to see that quote come. And, uh, that movie's almost perfect, I think, Man Who Shot Liberty. It's a, it's a great movie. Um, there's another one kind of like it, uh, The Shootist. Uh, I've, I've referenced the, yeah, the, the Shootist. <laughs> that, scene when, that scene when Jimmy Stewart first tells John Wayne what's going on. I don't, for people who haven't seen it, uh, you there's have incredible a cancer. Answer. <laughs> yeah, you got a cancer. That's exactly. Who. I'd have to gut you like a fish. And yeah. he says, "Cause I gotta, I'd have to gut you like a fish." Yeah, it's amazing, right? Yeah, those two guys, man. Yeah. That's what doctors have to do, though. I mean, they have to give people the the hard and honest truth sometimes when it it it, it rips you up. Well, well, and back then, I mean, you know, it's funny. I saw the shootist as a kid, and I, obviously, I loved it, but I didn't really understand it, and then. I watched it again about 10 years ago and it hit me in an entirely different way. Uh, right. You know, seeing the shootist as a real grown up. Have you read the book? Larry no, Ma never Larry read the book. The book is great. Wait, the shootist is based on Larry McMurtry? Yeah. I love, I mean, obviously Lonesome Dove is the best thing ever. So, yeah. I mean, 
I'll go read The Shootist immediately. I somehow didn't connect that. that he must have been young. That yeah. movie was like 19, 1976 or something like that. Yeah, late So 70s. he must have been really young, Larry McMurtry, when he, when he wrote it. Uh, all right, a few things, a few other things. Um, when you were playing sports, you had to kind of steel yourself against criticism. But when one is a writer, one has to be really critical of their own work in the rewriting you have to be process. critical of your own work and you have to accept other people's criticisms of your work because they, they look at it from a whole different side and, you know, there, there's yeah. a, a lot to it that you don't know. So you have to accept that. Yeah, so was that hard for you to switch gears like that and be able to sort no. of... Because writing requires a lot of humility, a lot of ego to do it. Like, you know, it's this combo, obviously, you know, but, you know, you have to gin up a lot of self-belief to, 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 to do the first draft of something. But, you know, two days later when you read it, it, it humbles you a lot of the time because you're like, oh, yes. my God, I can't fucking I can't fucking write. What happened? And then you got to rewrite it. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, so you've lived yeah. it. So it happens, and, and that's yeah. very different. So how'd you manage that? Is that? Did it hurt at first or were you, did you just accept it as part of the gig? You got to learn. That's how you learn. You know, you the uh, the moments that uh, exalt you and the moments that crush you. you you're gonna have uh, both experiences. Yeah, it's perfectly said. It's so it's so true though. The waveform is very frustrating, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's just frustrating, man. Because yeah. uh, if you do it right, you just are aware of like the uh, you know this idea of translating what you're feeling onto the page, even when you get capable at it you still know the gulf between the highest form of realizing it and what you've been able to do right. you know and it's a constant frustration you know yeah because there's what you've seen and then there's what you haven't seen and uh, people yes. will point out all the things that you haven't seen and the points that you missed so you gotta yeah of course you gotta accept that yeah yeah yes uh so in thinking about that, what you've seen and what you, you haven't seen, one thing that I've always felt a kinship with you over is your curiosity and how much of the path of your life has been fueled by curiosity to under, and uh, you know, the desire to understand why are things change, why they don't change, what things mean, get to the bottom of it. And um, do you still, are you still led by that in, 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 in certain ways? Are, are you still led by curiosity? Yeah, curiosity will lead you to some wonderful things and some dangerous things, <laughs> you know? Yes. So uh, be careful, wear your helmet and keep looking, <laughs> you know? I've always been fascinated by high intellect people who have an active relationship with uh, any deity, uh, it, you know, and uh, so I'm really curious when, and I know your religion is very personal to you and you make a point to talk about that uh, the way you practice your religion is one that you've figured out through your study, rejecting various orthodoxies, embracing other ideas, but in in your conception of the world, is there a is there a God? Are are you someone who believes in in a, a God, and is that something you have an active relationship with, or is your religious spiritual practice separate from that idea? Uh, it's I guess it's something I wrestle with on a regular basis, and you don't know which way it's going to take you. Um, there are times when I I believe really strong, and then there's times when I say. This can't, uh, this can't be true. And uh, I, I think all, all people of faith have that struggle. That's why it's faith, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not certainty. There's no one that can come and say, well, this is, it. This is how it works. And then when you die, you're going to go here. And, you know, it, we have no idea what, what, what's beyond the grave, you know. Well, yeah, but you're a, such a rational, you're such a hyper rational person, uh, yet it, 
so it's interesting to me that you find comfort in this series of practices that can only lead you to this uncertainty. Yeah, it, it, and you just hope. That's all you can do is hope that it is that way, you know, and the good deeds that you've done will uh, proceed you and... Yeah, that they'll accrete in some way that means something beyond just doing it for now. Right. What role does meditation play? Like, is your meditative practice strictly religious? I meditate twice a day, but I do transcendental meditation, which, you know, I know is not a real, for me, it's not a religious practice. It's a, a practice about just trying to find uh, some kind of center to alleviate anxiety, you know, all the things that TM does for, for somebody. But uh, and it's very useful for me. That and journaling are incredibly useful for me. So uh, what role does your meditative practice play for, for you? Well, you know, I, I did a lot of yoga, and that, that really helped me physically, uh, mentally, definitely. And, and physically, it, it uh, kept me from getting injured and enabled me to, uh, you know, master my body in, in, in a way that uh, helped what I was doing for a living, you know, yes, playing yes. as an athlete and uh, just as a someone who's trying to be healthy in more than one way, you know, more than physically and spiritually healthy. And uh, just the focus that you have to maintain uh, for consistent yoga practice will, will, will help you with that. And do you, is now it mostly, do you still do some form of meditation or prayer on a daily basis? I've, I've stopped doing a lot of what I should do, but uh, I still relate to it. Right. You know, I just yes, I've yes. made the, the practical uh, the practical adjustments for my life, but I, I, I still believe. I mean, related to all of this, making those adjustments, the fact of the matter is, and you talk about this in your writing, is you've been through health challenges. Uh, so this question of mortality, you know, it was amazing. You're talking about Wooden at 99, you at 65 or whatever it is, and now you're, deep, you know, really in your 70s. How do you make peace? You know, at 50, I just turned 56, actually. And uh, how do you think about your own mortality? Do you think about it, is it, or do you try to not think about it? I try not to think about it, but you can't help but think about it. You know, I, I see my granddaughters, yeah. you know, they're, they're young, and I'm like, geez. I hope I'm, uh, you know, around when they graduate from high school and and or get married or, you know, that type of thing. So um, you never know. You just have to live your life to the fullest and, you know, hope for the best. I mean, that, that's all anybody can do. I just love that you use the word hope so much and that you're a hopeful, that you, you find comfort in hope. I I think that the your public image is not necessarily in line with that and i think it's really beautiful that you've come to a place uh where where that kind of optimism is possible in a way it's, it's always been the way i felt about things you know and it's, it's enabled me to uh get past some really ugly moments i'm sure that it has that makes real sense all right speaking of a positive not an ugly moment i haven't watched um the lakers show I only watched one episode of it, and I, I understand how you, how, you, how you feel about it. So I'm sure they must dramatize this, but I haven't seen it yet. But as a kid, you know, Magic Hugging You was a really big deal. I remember it so well. I remember it on the news, you know, like whoever, Warner Wolf, because there was no ESPN. Like, I remember that moment. And then reading you talk about just in general how you didn't want to take the losses or wins so seriously gave me a real insight into, like, why you didn't, you know, you could, you knew, hey, I got to play 82 games. I can't get whatever. But... The legend of that moment, and again, I haven't seen the Lakers show, so I don't know how they deal with it, but the legend of that moment is like, it caused something to shift in you. And, 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 is, and, and, and is that, did it? Or did it change your modality with how you were gonna approach the season? Or was it more like you just understood this was a special guy who you finally kind of found a, a partner that you could go win championships with? I, I think, um... Giving it some thought, 
post-incident, I was like, you know, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the moment. And I had a very hard time doing that, you know, because uh, I'm here in Los Angeles playing my heart out, and we're not going to win the world championship. And everybody's blaming me because we're not going to win the world championship. You know, I have to take the, the, the majority of that weight. So uh, when we get to a point now where we're going to win and I'm dealing with someone who enjoys that and enjoys every second of his life, it, it really it opened me up to enjoying an, a number of things. And then, you know, Urban's family really made it easy because uh, they understood where I was coming from with my faith. Uh, Urban's mother is a Seventh-day Adventist, you know. Being. Yes. So it really enabled us to, uh, to grow together, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was a, yeah, I mean, a, a beautiful thing. Even then, being like this diehard Knicks fan, you, you couldn't help but be... Sw- well, it was great because anyone who would beat the the Celtics was like, that was great for me. You know, I was always happy. As soon as the Knicks were eliminated, I had to root for you guys because at least maybe you'd beat, you know, those annoying Celtics teams. So uh, I ended up, you know, I rooted for you a lot of games and I really worked for hours and hours and hours to shoot a hook shot. But sadly, it's mine's more like a Bill Cartwright jump hook. The sky hook's very difficult, especially for someone who's just six feet. Very hard to shoot the sky hook. As a six footer, it can be, but uh, you, you got to have certain tools. But I, I, I could, I could show you if you if you want. <laughs> yes, I, if you want to, I accept. Even now, yes, I would accept if we're on the same coast. I fully accept. All right, last thing. All right, two things. Sorry, I have two questions I have to ask you because they're things. One of them I've always wondered about. It's like for someone who's so seen, it it seems to me that that there was this disconnect there was between what you felt you were and the way things were projected onto you. And I'm wondering if you can, if it it now seems like, is there any satisfaction for you in the way in which a lot of the world now sees you? Meaning that people now seem to understand much more what's really in your the beauty in your soul as opposed to thinking you're this closed off person and and because you had to not give a shit about what they thought for so long are you able though on the other side of it to appreciate kind of being seen more yeah i can i can appreciate it and i can appreciate the way that i've affected uh, people's lives you know you don't you yes. don't know that um i can explain it uh, when Duke Snyder made the made the Hall of Fame, I went down to Dodger Stadium, got some. I, I had taken some pictures at Picture Day, 1956. He signed them for me, and um, he had no idea that some black kid from Harlem thought he was walked on water, you know. But in in my mind, he's in the same caliber as Michael Jordan, you know. It's no color doesn't make well any difference yes. there and, and so you but when you were Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when you became famous you you connected with Duke, Duke Schneider and told him oh yeah yeah the, I went I went down oh, how he, beautiful he signed my pictures you know oh uh, how beautiful is that I, I got Roy Campanelli oh my god Roy Campanelli and Duke Schneider those are those are my guys man. yeah man when when Reggie Jackson followed me on Twitter I couldn't believe it just because when I was 10, like the fact that what Reggie Jackson did, when he followed me back on Twitter, I, I lost my mind. It was like, <laughs> wait, Reggie Jackson likes billions? I mean, the same thing when I heard you watch billions, I couldn't believe it. It was, yeah. you know, even more, uh, e- even more for what you represent in, 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 in the world. Last question, which you're gonna like, cause it's a baseball question. Can you fucking believe the Shohei Otani guy? Can you believe what he's doing? Amazing, right? 140 something strikeouts and 40 something home runs. I'm obsessed. I can't fathom it. I'm watching. <laughs> I watch every. Do you watch the games? Have you gone out to the? No, I and mean, you know I, I don't live too far from Angel Stadium. You gotta go. I gotta go. I am determined to see him pitch because I watch every. I watch every game he pitches, and I haven't. Watched, he brought me back to baseball. I. I cannot believe that there's somebody doing this. It's crazy, right? Yeah, he's he, he he's. Uh, 
the last person that did that was Babe Ruth. That, that could yeah. do those those kind of things. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's 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 mind boggling. Well, um, Kareem, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I I just am so grateful to get to spend this time with you, and uh, I hope. Uh, when you come through New York, Deborah will will connect us, and uh, I'd I'd love to continue this uh, without microphones. Well, we got to do that. Uh, we'll definitely be in touch. Uh, all right, everybody. So thank you for listening. Uh, I think you can hear in my voice that getting to talk to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for an hour is uh, mind blowing uh, to me. But now it's good because I'm past that. We can now just kind of like hang. I've gotten through the hero stuff, but. Uh, Kareem, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for everything. I mean, all the things you did when you didn't know that I was watching you closely to understand <laughs> how someone's supposed to act in the world. And you're, uh, you're welcome. You know, you're a, a remarkable, a remarkable figure. People, you can find me uh, on uh, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter, though uh, I'm not really tweeting anymore. You can email me if you need me at the moment, BK at gmail.com. Kareem is on Twitter and you should read his Substack. I have subscribed for a long time and it's uh, a great way to see and hear uh, what he is writing all the time. So uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. 